1: Coming up on this week's show, Netflix Retro Gaming series is here, but is it any good? Sonic comes to the Super Nintendo. And we're joined by
0: Henrique Alifias to talk about the Spectrum next.
1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 239. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. I can't believe it's actually our final show of August already. And the last bank holiday weekend of the year here in the UK. I was in my local supermarket last night. They're already putting the Halloween stuff out on the shelves. That's
2: actually just blown my mind. That It's like it's the end of summer. Like, yeah, not only is like kind of like, where's summer gone? Where's this year gone? And that's also terrifying me because that means I've got a week until I go back to work after
1: my uh, paternity leave. <laughs> well, you're know, not coming next Christmas. Won't be far yeah. away now. I'll tell you one thing that I'm looking forward to more than Christmas, and I'm being completely honest about this. And that is getting my hands on my Spectrum Next. Now, I was talking about this last week on the show, um, the incredible performance of the Spectrum Next second Kickstarter. That I think when we were recording last week's show, it had just gone over a million. Uh, now it's well on the way to two million. It's doing really well. and There's still like a week left on it too, and the. Last Last time we did a full episode about the Spectrum Next, I think was about two years ago now. And that was with Jim Bagley. um, We also had the Oliver twins on there as well. Mike Daly, formerly of Cygnosis, who are all ex-Spectrum developers who are now doing incredible things on this new platform. And I thought it was about time that we did... An update on the Spectrum Next. And today we're going to be joined by one of the main guys behind it, Henrique alifias Because, I mean, I-, I couldn't think of another project, especially here in the UK, that's getting the amount of buzz that the Spectrum Next is getting at the moment, thanks to this second Kickstarter.
0: You know, I think the Spectrum Next is done really well. And considering that there was there was like a an amount of failed spectrum projects before and, and stuff that caused a lot of controversy. I think it's really a testament to how good the project is that they've kind of come out the other side of these and got, you know, people interested in a new spectrum, a new kind of machine. And it's taken a while, but you know, they've actually produced an absolutely amazing machine. And by running the second Kickstarter, they've kind of proven that the demand is there, you know, uh, Henrique was saying, oh, I wasn't sure that that many people would back it. What, what are they, on nearly a million dollars? Oh, well over now. It's, it's really a project done well in my eyes, and I'd love to see this kind of vibe done on many other machines as well, you know, revisiting them or, or, or getting updates, but also having, like, fantastic stuff like the OS in there
1: and the, the design of the case is just absolutely stunning. Well, we'll get more into the individual components of the machine and kind of the story of how it came to be. I mean, originally it started in Brazil a decade ago. And the idea originally behind the project was that it was going to be essentially just a, a clone of the original Spectrum. And as we know, it's become a lot more than that. It's kind of become the dream machine that Spectrum fans wish they had back in the 80s, that you know now with modern technology they can finally make. But I think, you know, you're the same as me, Ravi. Whenever we've been to, like, shows, Play Expo, Revival, those kind of shows, and we've seen the Spectrum next there, it all seems like there's something new that makes our jaws drop, and they're like, how on earth have you done that? That's That's the thing. Like, I looked at it and I
0: thought a lot of these other machines were recreations of Spectrums, and I was like, oh, okay, you could play the old titles on there, but this is something completely new. It's like a brand new system that you can do all these extra cool things on. So the like, room for development on there and the kind of development we've seen over the years is absolutely amazing. And It's a really good system. I'm so glad they're getting more users because it means there'll be more content coming out for it.
1: You know, I think it's cool as well, the fact that, you know, you look at us guys, I mean, you know, Joe, obviously you are a console kid growing up. Ravi, I know you, I think you started with like an Atari computer, then you had an Amstrad and obviously Amigas as well. Uh, me and my family, we were like, you know, a Commodore household and that was it. You know, plus 464 Amigas up until like the late 90s. But the fact that we're interested in the Spectrum next and, you know, the fact that I backed this project, you know, as a hardcore Commodore kid, proves just how interesting and widespread the appeal of this thing is, I think.
0: Well, you know, I'm an Amiga guy. And my Spectrum experience was going around my mate's house in Hull and sitting there and playing How to Be a Complete Bastard and all of these <laughs> kind of games. Uh, and it was really niche. It was good fun. And, you know, I've just got that feeling that this new machine, oh, my God, I'm just sitting there drooling, you know. And I kind of didn't get that appeal from the older ones. I know a lot mm. of other people did, but I think they may be
1: actually attracting new users to the spectrum scene with this machine so we are going to get the story behind the spectrum next project and also kind of where it's at now and what's coming up as well with this week's special guest henrique Alifias on the retro hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now now lots of stories to get through this week i must admit I kind of left it quite late doing the show this week because I've kind of been binge watching Netflix again due to this new show that actually has caused, um, from what I've seen online in the retro gaming community, it seems to be quite divisive. Now, this is a, I think, how many parts is this? Like a six part six, six series. Six part. Yeah. It's six part. It's called High School. Now, this is a really well produced prime time Netflix show. I mean, you opened Netflix all throughout the weekend. It was like you know top thing that you'd see on there, and it kind of details. Well, you look at that, it's essentially (laughs) a lot of the guests that we've had on this podcast in the past talking about their stories and kind of going through different eras of retro gaming, starting in text adventures, moving up through Doom, and then, you know, games like Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat. And there's a lot of the people who were behind making these games. Essentially, if you enjoyed this show, I think you'll enjoy High Score. But also, I think that it's not necessarily aimed at a real hardcore retro gaming audience. No I think it's about educating people like especially the younger
0: generation that don't know about this like for us we know all about this but I was thoroughly entertained there was lots of stories in there where they kind of they jumped around the time period it wasn't done like a traditional um, documentary where it starts from the beginning and goes to the end there was a jump around they were exploring different stories about communities they had about a gay RPG called Gayblade they had about the Atari competition and how that kind of r- related to eSports. And I thought it was really nicely done. I'm going to say, put, put it out there, that this is one of the best gaming documentaries that I've seen other than Ian Lee's Fum Candy. I tend to see the longer film ones that kind of explore it, and I, and I find them incredibly boring. And I found this entertaining, a re- real good entertainment you know
2: i'm i'm gonna be the first to admit that i've not actually watched it yet and both of you guys have messaged me and said make sure you messi- watch this because of i'm up all night at the moment with a baby just like binge watching i was gonna say joe you're
1: not busy what have you got going i on?
2: know i know i been. <laughs> you know what it is um i actually signed up to amazon prime uh about three weeks ago and i've not used netflix since then so i am gonna watch it but i've I, ravi's hit the nail on the head there i've heard really mixed things about it. i've heard some people saying it's absolutely amazing. I've heard some people saying, oh, they got the timeline wrong and they jumped from Doom and then jumped to this game and stuff like that. So it sounds like, to me, it's just really informative for a younger generation and it, it's just kind of there for them. And, you know, it's cool that it's on Netflix. And like Dan says, it's in like the top 10 most watched shows this week on Netflix, which I think is really cool because it's, 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 it's just educating everybody and it's not designed for us to sit there going, they got that wrong or "Oh, we already know yeah. that kind of thing. So I'm looking forward yeah. to that.
0: I think like people have this idea that there there is going to be the, the, the definitive gaming documentary and it's yeah. going to cover every aspect of gaming and it's going to go from the very beginning to the end. That's never going to happen guys. Like you you have all different types it's, it's, of gaming documentaries.
2: Yeah, there's too there's too much information out there to make you, you see these documentaries like Ravi said they're like 4 hours long, 3 hours long on just one console or just one game. So you can't there's just too much to give a definitive like this is every every kind of key moment in video game history. Do you know what I mean? I mean so, like
0: they missed a lot. They missed. Yeah. they missed like the whole of European gaming. Oh really? Like, yeah, you know was, what?
2: There's, there's a retro shop I rec- uh, I uh, I follow, and they keep they keep saying like, oh, according to uh, high score, the Mega Drive never existed, and I was a bit like, I don't really get the reference. So I'm guessing they just didn't cover it.
0: Well, it's very Japanese and American focused. Yeah. But you know, you've gotta you've gotta focus it down. But I think it just had a nice narrative and it was a nice uh, way of storytelling mm. and kind of getting these stories out of there. A lot like what
1: we do on the podcast, actually. It was a bit like the retro hour uh, the visual version. One thing I did like talking about, you know, you mentioned then that it was quite American focused. And I mean, it is an American-produced series, so that's to be expected. They did actually say the North American video game crash in it. Not the worldwide video game crash like a lot of American documentaries <laughs> do. That's probably the so. first
2: time I've heard it actually called <laughs> it the North American video game crash because they used to just call it the video game crash the yeah. worldwide. <laughs>
1: what America you thought. know what?
0: We we know a lot of stuff, right? Because we do this video, not to show off, but we, we, we do this podcast and we've interviewed a load of these people. And me and Dan both learned something from it. So mm. I, I think it's really, really good. Yeah, I recommend yeah, the, it to all the listeners.
1: And I think, you know, it, it is aimed at a general Netflix audience. And that fact that, Like you said, with the eSports stuff, a lot of the time they were kind of referencing, you know, kind of things that a younger audience will be familiar with today. Like they said, there wasn't eSports then, but there was the Atari Championships in 1980, the first one. So they often linked kind of modern gaming back to what happened before, which I think is going to make, especially like teenagers who are watching it and obviously don't know this stuff, I think that is going to kind of give them a point of reference. So it was a good way of doing it, I thought.
0: Yeah, they had a fantastic bit about Doom and it was about the original office in Doom where... Carmack and uh, Romero sat there listening to heavy metal just coding mental things and that just puts you in the place and I really like stuff
1: like that and they got this great pixel animation that they kind of run through it as well <laughs> which yeah, kind of recreates yeah yeah there's a the lot same. of
0: like as the story is being played pixel animations are going on to kind of give you a bit of a, a, a more fun kind of cartoony aspect of it and yeah I think that's great.
1: So if you've watched High School, we'd love to know your thoughts on it. You can get us, of course, uh, on Twitter, at RetroHourUK. One of the stories that was mentioned in there was, like you said a moment ago, a video game called Gayblade. Now, this was a game that was released in 1992 by a chap called Ryan Best. And it was one of the earliest LGBT-themed video games. And the thing about it is, in the documentary, they're talking to him, and he says he actually lost the game and all the source code in a house move. And it had an interesting story that was that the player had to fight hordes of enemies, including rednecks and homophobes. And actually, the last boss in the game was a conservative politician called Pat Buchanan. So it was a very tongue-in-cheek game. But unfortunately, he said he lost it. And then there was kind of a hunt to put this out there on the documentary that if anyone has got a copy of it from back then, get in touch. It turns out, though, since I made it, the game's actually been found.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's another great part of the documentary, that they decided to choose a, a, a smaller game for like a smaller community they could have talked about et and et being found that would have been very easy to do they had howard scott walsh or you know it all being buried and uh, they could have really gone into detail of that but this is like another story of a a smaller community that we we haven't really heard about and i'd love to do a episode exploring this or looking more into it and of course who's got it hosted at archive.org and uh, jason scott (laughs) has actually put a copy of there so you can go and play this absolutely mad dungeon crawler it looks it looks
1: quite late on that it was developed as well yeah 92 it came out so yeah i mean you're talking yeah you know it's kind of going into the 16-bit era by then isn't it we're well into it so yeah, if you want to do want to play that i mean if you watched high score and you're thinking that looks interesting i'll put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com now i'm not sure whether joe is going to be outrage at this next story. But it's finally happened. Sonic the Hedgehog running on the Super Nintendo.
2: Right. So I had my fragile little mind blown while I was doing the pots <laughs> yesterday. So since babies come along, I've not been able to get onto YouTube that much. But I was tidying the house yesterday and I was like, I'll stick the iPad on while I'm doing the pots. So and the top video I saw was Sonic the Hedgehog running on the NES. And I was like, excuse me, what? Thinking it was going to be one of these really stupid, you know, like clone games or... You know when they just use the sprites and stuff that you used to get on ROMs that you download when you're at school yeah. and stuff like that. But no, it is it's it's somebody has completely remade Sonic the Hedgehog on, on the Super NES. Only one level, Green so Hill Zone. It's Green Hill Zone, Part Three of Green Hill Zone, and it looks absolutely fantastic. It's taken 29 years for this to happen. And I think you know, <laughs> if it happened or you know, in the 90s in the playgrounds and stuff like that. I think there'd be absolute outrage, but I'm cool with it. I'm I'm like, okay, this looks pretty cool. The reason I might be cool with it, though, is because of it does look better on the Mega Drive.
0: <laughs> so it's so not... that blast processing, actually. Yeah, blast <laughs> processing is
2: actually doing something here for us. So, uh, um, so, yeah, so just to kind of go into the nitty-gritty of it, so a programmer called Tiago SC has posted the tech demo um, showcasing Green Hill Zone, like I say. And essentially what he's done is he's got the original source code, which was actually disassembled a couple of years ago and put online, And essentially what he's done is he's got the disassembled assets and then he's, you know, like the bits which can't run on Super Nintendo. He's then replaced with Super Nintendo assets. So it's not like there's different sprites or anything like that. It's all, the sprites are all perfect and stuff. I'm not, obviously I'm no coder or anything like that. But essentially if there's a colour that you can't get on the SNES, he's just used the SNES colour, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: I was going to say the colour palette does look a bit different. So the
2: colour Color palette does look a bit different, and one of the the kind of key things which is different on there is the sky. The blue sky has actually mm. got some like dithering effects in it, which actually make it look a little bit better on the Super Nintendo.
0: Sonic looks a bit dark bluer as yeah. well, it's yeah, a bit Sonic, lighter on the Genesis. Sonic does
2: yeah. look a little bit dark blue and stuff like that. But what they've actually managed to do really well is they have actually managed to get the speed down and the parallax scrolling and everything, they've got that down really, really well, which is one of the things they didn't think they'd be able to do, apparently, which is really cool. But the most interesting thing, I think, to me is for those kind of like hardcore SNES and Sega fans, is the Sega Mega Drive runs at 320 by 20 by 224 ratio, whereas the hmm. SNES runs at 256 by 224. So, what that actually means is you can't actually get everything in the screen on the SNES. Ah, okay. So, the main example is essentially when you start the game, because I was watching the video on this. When you first boot it up, on the Mega Drive version, you can see four palm trees. But on the SNES version, you can only see three of the palm trees. And then when you get to the boss at the end of the level, which isn't actually there, he's not managed to program Dr. Robotnik in, you can't actually see the whole fighting arena. And you actually have to scroll the screen from left to right to see the whole arena on the SNES. So it doesn't affect the speed of the game or anything. You just can't see as much as you would playing it on the Mega Drive.
1: I think they've done a really good job with this. I mean, yeah. there's there's some more tech specs in here as well. They're talking about the differences in the uh, the CPU. Yeah. Essentially, the uh, the Super Nintendo sprites are half the size of the Mega Drive ones, meaning oh, okay. they had to essentially double the amount of sprites in there to get the you know the, the images made up. So they actually made them more sprites. Um, but you thought that would have a bit of a knock-on effect. And apparently, it is a little bit slower. Oh, okay. But I mean, looking at this, I mean, in that demo, it doesn't look that much slower no. than the. Than the Mega Drive version, I've got to say, but they are saying it could be forty to seventy percent quicker on the Mega Drive.
2: Oh wow, that's interesting. I mean, so, they haven't got the last processing like around. exactly. That's it.
1: We thought we thought that was just a marketing thing, but it turns out it was real. <laughs> it, was a real it would have it. caused some fights in the playground, wouldn't it? Uh, out back it in the day. Would it
2: definitely would have.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was at school. I do remember kids in the playground being like, "Oh yeah, my cousin's got like Sonic on the uh, on the Super Nintendo," or you know, "There's a Sonic version coming out on the Amiga." Yeah, yeah, my friend's seen that. All these like different rumors that you hear around the playground. And then you'd be like, oh I've got to get hold of that. Obviously all like, you know, completely made up, but
2: You know what I always find interesting though, if when you should say that, because obviously, as we all know, it only ever came out on the Mega Drive and the Master System and like the Game Gear. But as an adult, it is funny when you watch these videos and it's like Golden Axe came out on like the Spectrum and the Amiga and <laughs> yeah. you know all these other random consoles. So it does surprise me that there wasn't versions of Sonic on not on the
1: Nintendo, but on like the Amiga and stuff like that.
0: Wasn't like a rolling demo
1: on the Amiga Revy, like someone kind there of. There was a like mundane. a
0: demo demo where 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 it was a proper rolling one. You couldn't do anything with it. Mm. Uh, there was one that was created later in Backbone, but that wasn't very good. But yeah. it does remind me of um, <laughs> this is a random story. Uh, my piano teacher, when I was a little kid, had a cool boyfriend, and he used to wear like rave jackets, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the late nineties. And he was so cool. He had a copy of Sonic 3, but he just had the PCB on a key ring. So we'd go around and just bang Sonic 3 into people's machines. And that was when it was really early uh, Sonic 3. And I thought he was like the coolest person I've ever met.
2: (laughs) I I was cool because I had Sonic 3 before any of my friends did because of my dad worked away in Jersey. And when he used to come back every month, um, because we wouldn't see him for a month, and then he'd come back for like a week. He'd always bring back uh, a game or a, a video for us and I, I i'm not too sure how but that for some reason they always had them before the uk like before you know mainland actually had it and we had sonic free about a month before it came out and i was the coolest kid for having it. <laughs> right, Everybody would come over and just be like, yeah, I've got Sonic free. Yeah, that's right. So you've got a line of friends banging on the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just lining it up.
1: <laughs> so if you want to check out this video then, it's finally happened after all these years. Sonic the Hedgehog running on the Super Nintendo. I'll put a link to that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Speaking of new versions of classic games, this is one I didn't think I'd see. Manic Miner running in gloriously rendered 3D.
0: Yeah, this is this is kind of mad. I was I was sent a link and it's like unlisted, but loads of people seem to be talking about it. And it's uh, it's Manic Miner 3D, and it looks like it's been recreated in the Unreal Engine. Now, Manic Miner is an absolute classic title, but it's it's amazing to see it in the Unreal Engine. And this has been made by one guy. Uh, all I know is he's the Blake Rob- Robinson Synthetic Orchestra. Seems to be his channel and um he's he's started it way back in 2005 and he's done the whole art himself uh music character models textures animations uh props and he's also added a few textures from the substance source library and the unreal store um but what he's done is he's recreated these levels and if you've ever played manic minor you know it's very bare and and you, you never see it in 3d really so it's bringing a whole new aspect to the game. And actually, I think this looks really cool. And yeah. I, I, I'd love to see a port for the Spectrum next or
1: something like that, but I don't know <laughs> if they could do it in the Unreal Engine. Well, the graphics on this look like it could be like a, a PlayStation 2 game, that kind of era it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, really I mean, nice. the fact that he has got the sound effects in there as well. And the classic <laughs> music, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's all in there. And Minor Willie looks a bit, it reminds me a little bit of Mario. Look yeah, it's got minute. more
0: really, of a kind of um, it reminds me mascot of that, um, look.
1: It reminds me
2: of that Toad game. That Mar- I can't remember what it's called, but it came out on the Wii U, and then it came out on the Switch.
1: The Captain Toad, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: it seems to me like a mobile title as well. Like you know, those mobile titles where you're kind of spinning around a center cube, or it's it's got that kind of square vibe. And
2: yeah, I think, that's I what think this meant. would
0: yeah. be really good with that. Imagine this on like a, a, a tablet or something. I think kids could really get into that.
1: Yeah, and it kind of rotates, doesn't it? As you go to different bits of the level. So I think he's done a brilliant job with this. And again, I mean, it's something that a fan's made. But, you know, the fact that he started this 15 years ago is obviously dedicated a hell of a lot of time to it. But the fact that one guy can make a game that looks this good and plays this well, I think is, you know, a real testament to his skills. I don't know, if is it going to get released?
0: I don't know. Uh, maybe... I don't know who actually owns uh, Jet Set <laughs> Willy or Manic Miner. We will have to probably it, it
2: check looks in like, the comments. Like <laughs> think that would come out on the Switch to me, and I yeah, think it'd it would do be well.
1: A good title for it, wouldn't it? I mean you know, fans of like Manic Miner are really passionate. I mean, we remember you know the the panel that um, Paul Drury did with. Matthew Smith, a play expert. I mean, it was like, you know, standing room only in there, wasn't it? It's such a fondly remembered game. And I think obviously doing an update of such a classic is always a little bit nervous because, you know, not everyone's going to like it. But I think he's done a really faithful job to this. And I mean, I'm actually doing a video at the moment. I'm going to finish editing this afternoon after we do the show um, all about the PlayStation 1 because it's um, 25 years since it came out in the UK next month. But I mean, I was kind of looking back on that era when everything turned into 3d and actually translating a game that's traditionally a 2d game especially a platformer into the 3d space it was something that even some of these big game companies couldn't get right
0: oh yeah there was there was a a whole group of really awful 3d translations that came out and uh bubsy
1: that was don't don't slag off joe's favorite game bubsy 3d (laughs) i knew that was coming (laughs) But yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, so I think he's done an incredible job with this, and hopefully we'll get a version that we can play soon. Now no Ravi, you're actually in the market for a new computer at the moment. I saw you put on Facebook earlier, you want a, an Atari ST, is that oh correct? Oh my God, yeah.
0: <laughs> Traitor.
1: <laughs> What's this for then? Uh, for DJing, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you don't use floppy disks, you might want something in there that can emulate disks. I mean, traditionally, the GoTech. Has been the uh, system that you normally use, put a USB stick in. You can emulate floppy drives. But it looks like there's a new alternative now as well called the, the Open Flop.
0: Yeah, so this is the Open Flops. And it's uh, basically a 20-quid USB emulator uh, floppy drive, which is really cheap as well. And it, it looks like it's actually going to be a GoTech rival maybe. Um, it's compatible with the Acorn Amstrad Amiga. Apple Atari Spectrum anything with a disk drive really and they've done a few additions to this board so you know these people were modifying their machines um by kind of cutting huge holes into it yeah. and and doing all of this well this fits in a bit nicer but also they've got it so it is fitting inside the GoTech drive as well so you can actually get the GoTech bays and put it inside
1: So if you've already got a GoTek, you can essentially just open it up and take the GoTek motherboard out and put this in.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's got auto-swap, all of the kind of features that you had. It's got a built-in speaker as well, so you can probably have those disc loading sounds in there. Uh, uh, uh. And (laughs) basically recreate the whole
1: floppy disk experience, but do it for a little bit cheaper than a GoTek. And apparently you can emulate two disk drives at the same time. Oh, that's cool. So got like pretty two LEDs cool. in there. Yeah, green one shows the first drive. And then you've got a red one that shows the second drive. So, I mean, I guess you could essentially run X copy. And just copy an image to another one, you know. If you had <laughs> That's nothing else what it. you'll be doing, just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all open open source, open hardware as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, anything like this, I think, is awesome. You know, the fact that you can replace your aging floppy disk. And for 20 quid, I mean, if you do get your two Atari STs, you know, you're sorted with that, I guess. But um, I, I've also noticed it's quite a big market for these in the, the sampling community. You know, a lot of the old samplers, they, they used floppy disk drives in them, didn't they? Old keyboards and stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's like... Akai samplers, stuff like that. I'm sure yeah. this would be adaptable to everything. They say uh, uh, it's got flash floppy firmware as well. So you can upgrade that. And that's available from our
1: friend Simulant, uh, uh, Simulant store. So that's simulant.uk. Fantastic. Well, before we get into our chat with Henrique is it's time to talk about this um, really cool new game. I got sent a link, actually, um, to this. It was running on Kickstarter a while ago, but I've got to give a big shout to James Roberts, who listens to the podcast. And it is essentially an update of the old game by Houston consultants, Iridium, which you know, was one of my favourite shooters back in the day. Andrew Braybrook, you know, we'd love to get him on the show. We are trying. We get a lot of people asking. If you know him, hit him up. We'd love to do an interview with him. But I remember Iridium 2 on the Amiga as well. You know, I was always a big fan of shoot 'em up games, and that was one of the most intense I ever played. And obviously we had the, the new version Hyper Sentinel that came out on the Switch and uh, Xbox and everything a couple of years ago. Well, this is a new one that's just come out on the PC that essentially brings... A lot of the best bits of Uridium, but also it takes inspiration from other games like Xenon 2, Mega Blast, and R-Type, other games as well, and uh, you know, you've got that parallax scrolling in there as well, 24 levels over six sectors, the graphic themes change as well, you've got three main player weapons in there, different power-up levels, rockets, missiles, and I mean, it looks every bit as frantic and as intense as Uridium did, if not more so. And I love these games, it's just a shame I've always been so crap at shoot em up games. And it only last about 10 seconds on Eurydium.
2: <laughs> I remember you showing me Eurydium. I was literally watching this video just now as you were saying it. I was like, I recognise this game. And I was like, oh, Dan made me play it at his once, and I remember you died, like, so quickly on it, and then I just there <laughs> playing it for ages. No, you didn't. <laughs> well are you about, Joe?
1: That didn't happen. <laughs> I think the thing that they've got right in
0: this is, like, that level of depth, because Eurydium had that kind of, you know, you could go under stuff, you could go over stuff, you could go up and down, and... It looks really awesome on this with all the backgrounds going as well. And, you know, this dynamic lighting and explosions. It's pretty nice to see. It It looks beautiful, doesn't it? In a
1: modern setting, yeah. Yes, I look forward to being frustrated at that this weekend. So uh, it is available now, of course. I'll link that up and everything else at theretrohour.com. And also the same place if you'd like to help us out on our mission at the moment to keep this podcast going, to get a little home studios built up so uh, Ravi and Joe can do the show in comfort and make it sound even better at home at the moment uh, by supporting us on Patreon. Now, of course, we did do our latest patrons hangout on Sunday night. We got to see uh, Joe's little girl join us as well on there for a couple yeah, of minutes. Yeah,
2: she did. I didn't. I, I said to uh, my wife, I'll leave her downstairs and... I was, I was literally sat at the laptop and then I just saw her in the corner of my eye and I was like, oh,
1: here she is. It's so funny because, you know, you'd assume if you haven't joined us on one of these before, it would be a load of guys, like, you know, geeking out about motherboards and video games. And we're all there like, oh, look at a little hands.
0: <laughs> what were we talking about? I
1: can't we even We ended up
2: talking about, about uh, VHS. <laughs> Bruce Lee Lee movies. Movies. I only, I only yeah. came on for about 45 minutes and then I had to shoot off um, but yeah, we were the whole time I was on. We were talking about horror films and all our just our kung, conf-
0: movies as kung well, fu movies. Kung fu
2: movies, weren't we? And just uh, <laughs> I'd never heard of Shogun Assassin, uh, which Ravi oh, was telling yeah. us all about. So I went down and started watching that. Uh, Did you enjoy it? No, I didn't actually pay much attention to it to be honest. But uh, yeah, it was just really fun, like just to get together. And like you say, we're not exactly nerding out about motherboards and how a saving trap <laughs> works. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we are. Sometimes we're just hanging out, and it's just really fun.
1: So if you'd like to join us on the next one, we do these every month, um, a couple of hours on a Sunday night, once a month. And, of course, you get the show a little bit early some weeks as well, essentially supporting the show and helping us continue to do it week in, week out. And we really appreciate your support. And, of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a shout in a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you so much to Ollie J. Danny McDermott. Richard Nichols. David Hall. And Carl Busby who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the patron link on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, time to talk about The Spectrum next, get an update on this massive retro project and the history of it as well with this week's special guest, Henrique Elifias, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. (laughs) You're listening to The Retro Our Podcast, and it is our absolute pleasure to welcome on this week's very special guest now. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by our guest this week. You know, we've done episodes before about this incredible new retro platform, the Spectrum Next. So It's incredible to get the face of the Spectrum Next project, the man that organizes it all, Henrique Alifea is on the show. Welcome, Henrique. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you for the kind invitation. Now, before we get into talking about the next, I mean, I just want to say congratulations on the incredible success of the second Kickstarter. I mean, you know, at the time we're recording this, I think you're on £1.2 million and growing. That must be a nice vote of confidence
3: it is I, I I never expected to to hit that value that many people backing it especially after the success of the first one right I thought there will be a few scattered cats around that couldn't join the first one uh, but lo and behold we have quite a bunch of people waiting for it and it's 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 a movement all over again so I, I am really really happy and very 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 proud of what we achieved
1: so I imagine at the moment launching a crowdfunder obviously with everything going on in the world it was kind of and a lot of people have done them and been a bit like oh you know a little bit nervous Nervous about it, but I mean, that was an overwhelming vote of confidence from the community that they really want to get their hands on this machine.
3: Yeah, but it's it's interesting because we had these uh, these uh, we were feeling a little bit uncertain about the situation, and so a lot of people might might be let go, or they will not have the funds, or they will be wary of investing on something which is quite frankly, not essential, right? This is, this is a passion project, it's something that you do either for leisure or, or because you are uh, feeling reminiscent of, of the old times. But um, at the same time, I also run a games company, right? And, and I was seeing that people were buying games that they had never been buying before. It's, it's like the games industry as a whole had a 50% uplift during the pandemic. Uh, so. It was touch and go. I really didn't know what was the right answer, but the inbound of people asking for it it actually kind of tilted the scales, if you wish. There were so many people asking for it for so long, and we just decided let's bite the bullet and, and, and let's make it happen before it's too late.
1: Well, we always like to kind of get the geek credentials of our guests and kind of find out, you know, your journey with computers. Where did it kind of all begin for you? Then your your interest in computers.
3: It was back in the ZX eighty one, right? I, I am Brazilian, as you can tell by my horrible accent. Is that? I, and I lived in this third world country where computers were this alien thing. They could not even be imported into Brazil because we have this situation where we had a protected market. So importing. uh, anything computer-related into the country was a crime. Uh, But that also enabled companies, local companies, to rip off computer designs from other countries and make them locally very much like the Russians used to do back in the day. So we had these clones from the ZX-81, call it the TK-85, and that's how I learned Computing. That's how I learned to program in Basic, right? And then soon after I did that, the TK90X, which is, was was a clone of the the the, the, the Spectrum, came about. And uh, I I I kind of I bother my parents to know when to get my hands on one. And then lo and behold, in my birthday I got I got gifted one. And and that's the the rest the story. I, I I just fell in love with that machine. And, and unlike the Russian clones, the the TK95 looks very much like. Uh, spectrum. It's slightly slightly bulkier, but it's still uh, the same form factor. It's still the the, the same rubber keys and everything. So you know, I started to learn basic, and all of a sudden I, I bumped into the limitations of the programming language in terms of performance, and I had to find my way in coding in, in, in machine code and assembly assembly, and and uh, and, and that was it. I, I made my first game in that in that machine, and starting selling that on the small town I lived to first at, at, at kids in school, and then by advertising in bulletin boards, like physical bulletin boards. BBS did not exist back then still. and then, Or if they did exist, not in Brazil for certain. Uh, and I started to spread like copied paper on a Xerox saying that I sell computer games and it was just the games that I made. And uh, I got into gaming like that, that that was my first experience into computing. And this is why the spectrum is so close
0: to my heart. Were you aware of the kind of, British scene at the time the synth music uh, synth britannia and also were you aware of spectrum and they're uh, kind of where they came from
3: very much so, because uh, uh, magazines like Crash and uh, Your Sinclair, they were sold as imports. Like uh, anything that was printed matter, you could import into Brazil. And uh, they were very expensive. And most often than not, they will not carry the the, the, the cover cassettes. But the magazines themselves did arrive there. And I, I, I lived and breathed uh, uh, back then at the British culture. I, I was a tune, probably like one or two months behind, but I I knew which games were being made. Uh, I I, I basked in the humor that the the, the writers of your Sinclair made sure to inject into every single page of that magazine. And if you remember those magazines, they were not just about the computers themselves. They were very much like the culture around it. and, And... and sith and, and britannia and new order and and, and so on and whatnot and the, all, all that leaked into into it and and i found myself like this this british guy stranded in brazil <laughs> for all my childhood and early teenager years um because that that's that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be part of that scene and, and i couldn't i was just a bystander to some extent
1: and i bet buying the magazines over there was much more expensive than here
3: very much so, but I, I, I had to save uh, uh, my, my my pocket money f- for the entire month to be able to afford them, unless I, I sold a few extra games. <laughs> it was quite a cutting cutting close kind of a, a relationship with with those magazines. But I. I there was nothing I, I loved more than those magazines and, and any games that I could get my hands on and, and to be honest like in Brazil, the only way I could get games was through swapping games with people like pirating them right and there was no way to buy them legally anyway um so, there is that blemish in my history. I <laughs> have to <laughs> confess
1: I think the day we discovered tape to tape copying was a revelation for a lot of kids, I think
3: <laughs> yeah I know right and it, it, it was part of, of 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 what made it special i i i know today that it's kind of wrong, but back in the day, I had no conception that that couldn't be done, and that it shouldn't be done right. It was only when the first ads came out on this magazine saying that it was it was these horrible ads that has this kind of a uh, a headmaster's a statement that he was a good kid and he shouldn't go to jail.
1: Kind of thing. <laughs> I remember those, the anti piracy adverts, yeah.
3: Exactly. <laughs> but there you go. Um, yeah.
1: Well, have you got a background in electronics or system design then?
3: No, I don't. Uh, the, the the I grew up with a, a childhood friend, which is Victor uh, Truco, who also uh, is in the Spectrum Next scene, right? Uh, he was uh, the electronics guy. I, I, I know my way about electronics. I, I can certainly put together a machine. I can I can fix a, a a broken computer. Find out what is a bad part on a Spectrum and so on, right? But he was the designer of, of these things, and the first time. Uh, um, I saw him uh, uh, doing something different was when he put apart a, 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 a one of those machines, a, a TK90X, that was not fully compatible with the spectrum. It has some memory addresses, differences, and the ROM was slightly different. So only 95% of the, of the software would run. Uh, and, and how he, he worked around that problem and fixed that in a hardware level. And years later, we, we were both of us putting together like uh, Amiga accelerators that were meant for the Amiga 2000 to run on Amiga 500 by uh, uh, just wiring it differently and adding a flip flop uh, chip here and there, and just making those things run, right? But, but I, I was never, and I'm still not to this day, uh, uh, electronics or or uh, a designer in that sense. Victor very much is, right? And 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 he's. Uh, He's a hacker, a hardware hacker, if you wish.
0: Well, you mentioned there uh, that you had uh, Amiga. What other systems did you have? And kind of what made the Spectrum really stand out from these systems?
3: Well, I had I had, a, I had a few systems back in the day. Uh, the, the Spectrum was my first and the one that I used for the longest. It, um, from the Spectrum, I had an MSX, uh, which is the Japanese uh, um, form, right? It's it, it was an 8-bit machine, to some extent, very similar to the ZX Spectrum. Most games on, on the MSX were actually parts of Spectrum games. Um, and then the, spec, the, the MSX evolved into the MSX2 and so on. Th- th- that was very strong in Brazil as well. And then I jumped into the Amiga. Uh, that was my first 16-bit computer. It was an Amiga 500, which I had to buy uh, in Miami and bring it into. In, in so my family went went to spend holidays in, in in Disney World and the only thing I could think of was when when can I buy an Amiga and go back home. <laughs> so I, I packed that home and, and brought it with me. Um that's, that's, that's how far I went with computers back in the day, right? From, from the Amiga, I kept stretching that Amiga 500 with upgrades into a 040 uh, processor and so on until I had to migrate to the PC like everybody else eventually had to do. Um, but the Spectrum was the endearing one. It was the one that stuck with me because it was the one that understood the best and was the one that felt like this, this one thing that can do everything, right? That I never had to expand on the Spectrum. Um, and an Amiga was this mishmash of, of expansions and uh, extra bits here and there. The MSX was very much like that. Uh, the, the, for it to be fully realized, I had to add disk drives, then I had to upgrade it to MSX2, and then I had to add Mega RAM and whatnot. The Spectrum, the spec always was that neat, beautiful design that remained this one tiny thing that could do everything. And th- that's what is so endearing to me.
1: Well, moving forward to the Spectrum Next project then. I mean, I was reading that that started actually around a decade ago in Brazil. What was the story with the roots of that project and how did you begin?
3: Yeah, so that had nothing to do with me. There was this friend of mine, which I mentioned before, Victor Truco, and a friend of his, uh, Fabio Belavenuto, and the two of them created what was called the TB Blue uh, board, which is essentially a board for you to house inside the original Spectrum case. Um, and, it, and it brought together a few niceties, such as a, a kind of a Div MM, DivMMC uh, uh, drive interface, uh, compatible realization of that uh, with a SD card and uh, more memory, etc. All FPGA-based at the time it was based on a different FPGA, and they 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 sold those uh, for people in Brazil to house within their the. 90x and uh, they, they wrote me if if I wanted to help them bring that to the UK and, and sell some of those in the UK and I keep on thinking to myself and say this is neat I want one for myself because I'm tired of having all these expansions attached to my to my uh, 128 uh, spectrum but um, that's not the experience the experience was getting a box opening it up and getting one thing out of it which was beautifully designed that you can just turn it on and get going with it, right? It was not about opening up and swapping uh, uh, swapping uh, boards and doing anything like that. So I half kind of half joked about what if we made a whole machine? And that that resonated with them. And the next thing I know, I was reaching out to Rick Dickinson asking if he could design the machine, and I was reaching out to a couple of contacts I had at Sky if they would uh, uh, license me uh, the Sinclair and the Spectrum brands. And everything started to fall in place very quickly, and all of a sudden, we had it. So between that and the first Kickstarter was just a matter of us designing a lot of uh, uh, prototypes and testing it and making sure that the hardware was well mature before we embarked on a risky proposition that was make thousands of these things with people's money.
0: I was going to say like um, a lot of the other Spectrum recreations, some of them used older pieces of hardware and you guys are using more modern hardware. Um, How did you source your equipment and how did you kind of decide to do these numbers on bulk and work out what the right amount would be?
3: We only knew what the right amount would be once the Kickstarter wrapped up. So we knew exactly how many of them we had to do. But we had an order of magnitude because there was a minimum amount. So it would either be we will make a thousand of these things or we will not make any at all. Um, So we, we prepared with our partners around the world like the major partner we have is is the assembly plant, like right? the manufacturing assembly plant in Nottingham, which is SMS Electronics. Um, they are the responsible for putting all the hardware together and assembling the machine, and then testing, verifying, packing, and 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 moving it on to the distribution center. So, we they they made. Uh, um, all the prototypes for us, all the prototypes were already made by them. So we gave them the design. They will source the pieces, the parts put together. We will bake the firmware ourselves and we will put it through its spaces through days on end testing reliability and so on. Um, so we knew very well what we were getting into. Well, very well, to some extent. right? There was a lot of unforeseen uh, problems that we had through the first Kickstarter. I can talk all day about those. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, w- w- the one thing I wanted to do was to ensure that the hardware worked. That would not have hardware surprises in terms of uh, um, will it be compatible, will it be scalable, will it last? All those were fairly covered. Uh, the things that I didn't cover, of course, were manufacturing problems, right? And those were only became, only became apparent once we started manufacturing it.
1: I love the fact that it's put together in Nottingham as well. We actually live in Nottingham. I could go and pick mine up this afternoon, I think.
3: Oh, yeah, of course. It's all right (laughs) there on the corner. You probably know who is working there. Everybody in Nottingham know each other, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's a
1: small place. (laughs) Well, I mean, you mentioned the TB Blue was like essentially a recreation of the original spectrum in FPGA. When did the project goals go beyond that then? And when did you decide to put all these new features in there? And for people that might not be familiar with the specs, how does the NEXT improve on the original spectrum models?
3: Oh, that's a very good question, because when we started, all that it was about it was, let's make the Spectrum, the Spectrum experience, but with just the expansions that we know of, right? It's it's, uh, it's, it's large storage from SD card. Um, It's it's just we have some NMI buttons that you can emulate the functionality of Interface 1 and and that kind of stuff. It was about recreating the Spectrum in a neat package fine but as we we started to work on it we start to get community involved and they giving suggestions why don't you expand the memory so we can do this why don't you uh, actually get a slightly larger fpga so we can add another uh, another uh, audio chip on it instead of Using just the beeper, we now have a, 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 a ay, and why not have just one ay? Why don't we have three? And <laughs> so they started to scale up, um, and we and we embraced all of it, right? And the, the, it made sense; it made into the design. So by the time we had probably five iterations of the board, from the TB blue up to the release, the first board release, which was dubbed the, the issue two a. Um, We even changed uh, uh, the FPGA entirely. It started as Altera and we changed to Xilinx because the Xilinx at the time was cheaper. So we could afford a larger one by the same price. so to accommodate all these changes. And the specs started to move uh, into much bigger things. Like we are now able to run it faster, first to seven megahertz, which was what the first Kickstarter was about. And today is 28 megahertz. We keep on improving the speed thanks to the help of people like Alan and, and all these wonderful people in the community that join and offer their, their, their know-how and, and their work to make the, the, the next better. So in the end, we ended up with a machine that is today with two megabytes. Uh, it can run the games at 50, uh, sorry, at 28 megahertz. It has three AY chips. So it has nine channels plus PCM audio, 8-bit PCM audio. It has, of course, the SD card. It has its own OS by Gary Lancaster, which is the next OS, which is a beauty to use. It has the next basic, which is a, a huge step up from the original basic. Uh, what else? Oh my God. There's so many features, right? It, it it it's it it has these different identities. You can run the Russian clones on it, like the Pentagon and and so on. And it's still growing. Uh the people who back this this campaign on issue two, they're already getting because of the stretch goals, they, they're already getting twice as much memory they they they, they, they pledged. And the, 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 we will continue to expand as much as we can. Every single cent that we get on top of what we need to to manufacture the next we revert back to expanding to specs so I, what i can guarantee is what you're getting today is not what you what you're paying for today is not what you will get in six months to a year's time when we start shipping It will be something better than what you expected and that's the philosophy right that is get something buy something and they get something which is twice as better as good as what you expected which is what the spectrum is all about it was always all about that right
0: Well, how much input did the community have into the design, and how much did it kind of change over time? I know, like uh, there was, I heard there was mentions of a SID chip being in there at some point.
3: Yeah, that backfired. (laughs) (laughs) We 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 could do it, but people felt like it was straying too far from from the tree and I, I i had i had to agree with that but um it's all about the community everything that made into it it was either a suggestion or was actually someone in the community doing the legwork for making it happen and bringing it up to us right even the the first iteration that we we got into developers hand we was an issue one uh it already had the new video modes it had like the f- 512 colors and it had higher resolution modes uh, like 640 by 256 pixels. But when people got their hands on that, they started to suggest that we have coprocessors like coppers to do tile maps or do scroll or do uh, um, sprites, and so on. And those were incorporated into the firmware as fast as we could do it. Uh, so the, 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 that all came from the community, people like Jim or, or other developers. Uh, the 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 the, Z, the 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 main processor is what we call the Z80N. It has, I think, 80 new instructions that the original didn't. And all those instructions are meant to be, either make things faster or easier for people to create content for the next. And this is why we now have like three dozen of next-only games that were made for it in such a short space of time. is because uh, it's interesting for people who coded back in the day to come back and see what is new, what else can be done, and if there there isn't that kind of feature, they could ask for it, and we could go back and either rectify a bug that was existing in the original hardware, or expand the original hardware to support that idea. Uh, and lo and behold, we have more than 80 new instructions into, into the processor, just, just to satisfy that uh, that part of the community.
1: The one thing I keep hearing about, you know, any developer that makes anything on it is they keep saying, oh, I wish we had this back in the 80s. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I wish I had that back in the 80s. And it's true. is that what if Sinclair carried on with it and, and, and made a machine? There wasn't the QL. There was something that could actually fight against uh, uh, um, the, the, the Amiga and the Atari ST, right?
1: Well, you decided to run a Kickstarter back in 2017. And obviously, that did establish a nice initial user base. Although, uh, I did read that you didn't actually make any money off that due to a bit of complication.
3: (laughs) I lost a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, and it was naivety. Well, we got uh, uh, some conflicting advice. Um, Back then, because crowdfunding was such a new thing anyway, uh, it was assumed that crowdfunding, because of the inherent risks of it, it was not actually meant... Uh, to be equivalent to buying something, okay? So uh, there was a lot of articles on the web and a lot of uh, tax advisors saying that crowdfunding uh, was not due VAT. And uh, this is so much so that Kickstarter didn't support VAT and still doesn't. Uh, The the most you can find about it on Kickstarter is a small page saying that uh, creators might be liable to VAT if they are in the UK or in Germany. And they only did that because people in Germany and the UK were liable for it, and as were we. So there you go. I had to pay uh, uh, 20% of, uh, of, uh, of, of um, the full price of the, uh, each pledge, right? At least each uh, EU pledge, I had to take 20% off and give to the taxman, rightly so. Um, and that was not factored in. And, and when the original the, the campaign was made, it was made as a almost at cost, right? There was always the ambition. It was never for me, for anyone to become rich or make money out of this. It was something for the community. And this is why we go to this lens of, assembling it in the UK. If I assemble it in China, it would cost a fraction of it, right? But there was never the intention. The intention is, is to do it in the UK because it's the roots of the machine and it's all the sentimentality around it and the quality control that we get by building something here. Um, and so I was out of pocket on that, indeed. Uh, but it's, it's, it was never about the money. It was about uh, um, making it happen. And thankfully, I, I am in a position where I could cover for that at least until kickstarter 2 came along and hopefully it will cover that hole in in my account
0: (laughs) well sometimes when people upgrade systems or they have a a new kind of version of a system it's not very backwards compatible and that's not usually an option um why was it really important to have that backwards compatibility and the ability to do stuff like run cassettes on there
3: uh the two two aspects to it the first one is to be because this is this is a scene of people who love the original. Uh, we felt like we could not stray away from that, right? People, a lot of people have collections of games in cassette. So what they would do with that? It is, it's not the same thing that you own something physical that you want to transfer to your own SD card. They're just getting a copy of that out of a repository in the internet. It certainly emotionally is not the same. And we are talking about emotions here, right? Nobody needs a Spectrum next. People want a Spectrum next. They they will not use it for work, right? This is not it. It's not a utilitary machine. It's a machine that has its use if you are learning to code or or, uh, if you want to do things that you couldn't back in the day or if you want to play old games that you loved in a better way, uh, faster with better graphics or if you want to play better versions of those games that are being made like Lords of Midnight, etc. But it's not about uh, this is a functional machine that I need tomorrow so I I can work on it. OK, it's all about emotions. We're talking about emotions. So that was the first aspect of making it fully retro compatible. The second aspect of it is to make a clear, discerning uh, proposition from emulators. There has to be an advantage for you to have your Spectrum X compared to an emulator. And the only way for you to do that is to respect the execution of, of, of uh, the software, how it runs, to be as, as, as original as possible. Yeah. And you can only do that with real hardware, right? You, you cannot do that through emulation. The people sometimes uh, are mistaken, saying that FPGA is emulation. It's not. FPGA is essentially the same hardware, right? It's 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 chips, it's, it's transistors inside a chip that get switched in a layout that is the same layout of the original hardware. Every piece of hardware, every chip that exists today, was once an FPGA prototype. The only reason they are not FPGA for shipping to consumers, because FPGA is far more expensive than a fixed design chip, but they are exactly the same. They perform exactly the same. So it's not emulation in any shape or form. This is this is why, right? We want the things to run exactly like they run back in the day, and the only way to do that is, is by uh, by using FPGA or, or the, the 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 fixed design chips like a Z80 and so on.
1: And obviously, it's really important that you've got the Spectrum branding on there as well. And like you touched on before, Sky Television actually own that now. I mean, I think it was via the, the Amstrad acquisition. Then obviously, they bought Amstrad. How did you approach them with getting the branding on there? And what's the conversation kind of like? Do they, do they kind of readily give that out then? Or have you got to kind of convince them?
3: Uh, no, I had, I had friends who worked at Sky. I, I know, I know uh, colleagues that worked there and that facilitated the opening the doors. And uh, once I explained to them there was a uh, it was a passion project it was men- it was not meant to be a profit or anything like that their approach was very much the kindest approach that could ever ever be right they they were very straightforward and say you can have it as long as you steer the brand with respect and it, I had to show them like all the designs I have to show them all the, the the card renders at the time of the case how it would look like what it would do they were super precious of the brand but once i established uh, um, that it would be respected they were super uh, open to it and they 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 allowed me to use it and i have to be immensely thankful of to them they, they asked of me to to make some charitable donations of some of the proce- the proceedings of of the campaigns which i did um, and that was it that they 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 follow up very closely. I have to send them machines so they can keep uh, them uh, on on, uh, stock for reference so they they can always check it out and, and show internally and see that the brand is being preserved. They're very precious of it. And I understand from other people who tried to do that in the past that they, they didn't succeed, particularly because th- th- there was uh, people who tried to use the brand and it didn't didn't work out, right? And, and that that corrodes the brand, that is damaging to the community and the brand. So they, they are always reticent from new people approaching them. And I, I think that it only worked out for me because people knew me and, and knew me from a uh, uh, um, professional setting, uh, how much I care about the games we make at the games studio I work on and and uh, how much care I have uh, with, with partners and so on. So that, that already was known to them. So it was an easier discussion than someone coming cold and saying, hey, I am I'm capable of doing this. But, but they will never know until you do it, right?
0: Well, has Sir Clive Sinclair seen it? Has he actually got one? And uh, what does he think of it?
3: That's the thing. I have no idea. I have no idea. I tried to contact him to uh, come on, uh um Contacts a couple of times, but it never went anywhere. I I I don't know him personally. I never met him. And a couple of people came to me and say, "Oh, I know Mr. Clive and and, and uh, Mr. Sinclair, and, and uh, I, do you mind if 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 I reach out to him and see what he thinks?" I said, "Oh, by all means, I I could send him a machine, and I would be super curious." But it never actually happened, and I, I really don't know why. And I think that this I personally. I, I'm not disappointed by that, I have to say, because I hold him in such high regard, such a high standard. It's, it's, it's that old saying, you should never meet your heroes, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I kind, of, I kind of have that in the back of my mind. It's like, uh, uh, he's such a private individual anyway, I shouldn't be bothering them him. And um, it, 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 it's, 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 it's this kind of duality. Sh- should I force it or, or should I just let it be? And I've, right now I'm playing on the let it be side.
1: I think Uncle Clive would be impressed.
3: I hope so. I really hope so uh, because I try to respect everybody who made this thing right and originally, like Rick, who sadly departed us. Uh, um, but it was always about that. It's about respecting the roots and the origins of it and making it making it a good representation of the of the original of of the incredible work they did back in the day. So I, 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 I would love, yeah.
1: I wonder if he backed your Kickstarter under under a pseudonym or something.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, actually there's there quite... I, I cannot tell you who, because I don't have authorization, but there's so many industry people uh, from back in the day who did back that. People who are today guess, celebrities in their own right, right? Working in big companies, big gaming studios
1: and so on. They're all there. So let's talk about the audience of the system then. I mean, obviously, you know, people that were Spectrum fans originally... Are really interested in this machine is a mainly at them then or have you got new users coming along maybe younger people who didn't have a spectrum back then and maybe people you know commodore 64 fans who want to try a spectrum what's the audience kind of made up of a
3: well, majority is of course people who are into the scene right they are spectrum users but we have first-time comers i would say probably six or seven percent of people who never had a, a spectrum before and they just like the idea they are retro gamers but not spectrum retro gamers per se right and uh that 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 is expanded with the Commodore crowd as well, but it's not a big crowd. It's not like ten percent. It's not. It's, it's, it's single digit.
0: What's the kind of span around the world like? Is it mainly UK and Europe focused, or or is it all over the place?
3: No, it's all over the place. Fifty percent of them is is Europe, of which forty percent is UK, uh, and another fifty percent is uh, is uh, Asia, Americas, and um, and Eastern Europe.
1: Yes, yeah, the original spectrum, I mean, like you mentioned at the start of the interview, all those clones that were around back then, I mean, you know, it reached far beyond the UK, didn't it?
3: Yes, there is a huge scene in Poland, in Czech Republic, and in Russia, of course, right? Russia is complicated because to export to Russia, to import as a Russian is is, is expensive and it's complicated. Um, but we do have a scene there, especially when we started to support the Pentagon uh, um, uh, timings, and now we it's not exact yet, but I guess for, for this issue two, when we update the firmware, we will get pretty close, if not right there. Uh, so it, it became stronger. There are some good games being made in Russia and in, in Czech Republic for the next. And the community that seems to be picking up for this campaign is certainly stronger now than it was in the first one. I think they were reticent about uh, uh, it not succeeding right? There was, there's always a risk associated. But now that we proved that we can deliver, uh, more of them came into issue too. And I hope that uh, it gets stronger there because some of the stuff that they produce in, in Eastern Europe is super good. It's very, very good. Some of the, the, the games there and some of the demos and applications for the original Spectrum and the Pentagon, um, they, they are like gems. They really are.
1: Yeah, I've been to like Pixel Heaven and seen them running there. It looks incredible
3: exactly exactly
1: well talking about impressive things on the spectrum next i mean i missed out on the original kickstarter but i am in there on the new one and i can't wait to get hold of my machine but whenever we go to you know play expo or revivals places like that i always find jim bagley he's always got a spectrum next set up somewhere and some of the things i've seen i mean i remember mike daly showing me his lemmings demo back in 2018 a play expert manchester and you know it was up to spec like the 16-bit versions didn't look that good on many platforms what are some of the most impressive things that you've seen the next do so far uh,
3: i really like the remake of lords of midnight because i love the original game um melchior's mansion which is not yet released but it looks so good um uh, jim has a couple of games jim and flash they made uh, warhawk which is good And uh, Beggars in Space, which is great. Uh, It it starts a little bit a Jackpack, but then it becomes a a hero, you know, where the the one you go into the caves and have to blow things up. And and all of a sudden it's another mashup and it's super expensive. I like Beggars in Space a lot. Um, I'm looking, there is one demo from Robin, which is a remake of Robotron, which is so good. It's a shame that he never made the full game because he's worried with rights and, and so on. And um, what else? I'm playing on, on the next. Uh, uh, the Hollow Earth theory is, is good. Um, there are a couple of good uh, uh, platform games, but uh, these are the ones that spring to mind. Particularly, uh, uh,
0: Lords of Midnight. That's very close to my heart. Are you noticing like some of the old original Spectrum devs coming back to the scene? And uh, kind of, who are these guys that are publishing games at the moment?
3: Actually, most people making Spect- uh, next games are. Uh, original devs, right? Uh, people like you mentioned, Mike Daly or uh, 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 Flash, Jim. Uh, I th- I think the last the last group I counted was around 22 uh, all time developers, uh, original developers from the ne- from the spectrum doing work on the next, and more are coming now. The, 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 the main issue is that some of them come wanting to remake an original game right update the graphics and the gameplay etc and invariably they, they bump into rights issues where is the original right lying on today sometimes we can find it and i can help sometimes we cannot even locate it and and then is a no go so that that is that problem but but people making new stuff that that's absolutely fine and and, and, and and, and that tend to be newcomers. That, that's don't, that doesn't happen with the, the original developers most of the time. Original developers want to bring a new version or a, a, a new installment of a game, whereas the, the new people that come to the platform fresh as developers, they want to create something completely new. There's very interesting dynamic is is quite unique.
1: But well, you've got you know, some celebrities in the Spectrum scene who are making games for it. I mean, the Oliver Twins with a uh, wonderful Dizzy, which I believe is a Spectrum Next exclusive.
3: Exactly. So we have. there was another gentleman who also joined Jazz and the Oliver Twins on the first Kickstarter to make a Nodes of Eazod. He's also still working on that. So these guys are coming and they are bringing their new games. We have other people like Lyndon Sharp and so on working on things like Dream World Poggy, there is, a, there is a website, which is Spectrum X Games, that is, uh, um, that is collating all the projects currently in development that we know of and the ones that have been released. And it links to everywhere that you can find them. Most of them are free for download, and some of them you have to buy usually on HIO I.O. Or, or dedicated platforms. But uh, there is a lot of people who have not announced games yet because they are trying to secure their rights uh there are six people six games right now in in kind of this discover discoverability stage if you wish where the rights have been trying to to be cleared uh so they can announce that they are working on something and i hope that this will be in time for the next two being shipped uh that that's definitely the idea
0: well there's not just games as well i've noticed that there's lots of productivity software as well like uh, next and uh, Nextel. Um, could you tell us more about these?
3: Yeah, the Next Dawn is a great is a great example of, of uh, uh, someone who picks the hardware early on and drive it to the maximum capability, right? And and I don't remember original audio software like Next Dawn, right? I can it, it reminds you a little bit of ProTracker on the Amiga, right? It's, it's that it's that level of quality.
0: It's kind so, of like a mix between ProTracker and Fruity Loops, and kind
3: of yeah, yeah exactly. And it it's, it's surprisingly easy to use, and you can use it with the mouse as well, right? Because the next supports a mouse, and the mouse is it's super smooth. It's, it's, it's on par of one. of... I wouldn't say Amiga mouse because the Amiga mouse is, is on its own league, but uh, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good or better than a PC mouse, and you're using that as well. But you also have now uh, the first um, the first uh, art packages, um, like PlotIt. You, you have some OS uh, um, applications like Calm Commander that just open up. Uh, um, it's like File Commander, right? You open up two windows where you can copy things around. And uh, you have things like the NXTEL that allows you to... Uh, um, communicate with the Wi-Fi module and, and go online. And, and, and there's even this, this, um, this portal for uh, Teletext just made for the Spectrum, right? You connect via NXTel which is, is, a, is a, such a strange experience. You, you're looking at this ASCII kind of BBS kind of experience on, on a Spectrum. At <laughs> this day and age, it's like everything crashing together in this soup. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good experience.
1: Do you think there will be, or maybe there already is, a market for commercial software on the system?
3: There, there definitely is. Uh, the the rusty pixel guys, like uh, Jim and Flash, MicroWare, uh, they they sold uh, thousands of games uh, for the Spectrum, but they they are boxed games, so they're very much collectible. And and I have seen other people doing it as well. There there are some. S- I would say, 10, 12 boxed games that got released for the Next uh, uh, and sold for the Next. And not everybody who's buying them own a Next. There's a lot of people who run them on, on emulators uh, because they couldn't get the Next first time around. And now they are now their backers. Uh, I, they sold a fair amount. They, it, was, it was a worthy endeavor. If, but it's, surely it doesn't sell on the millions, right? It's, it's, it's still a niche proposition.
0: Well, you're co-founder of Bossa Studios as well. Um, do you have any plans to release any games for the next?
3: I should. Everybody tells me that. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I, I, I am starting to work on a game of my own uh, on my spare time. Uh, I guess when, when the campaign is over and a couple of games that I have lined up to be launched later this month uh, are, are, are live, I will have a bit more time to engage on a new project. And I already know what the game is going to be like. I just need to put together a couple of collaborators and, and kick that off.
1: There you go, little exclusive. Enrique is making a game. For the next. <laughs> That's
3: exclusive as well. <laughs> actually, actually, not to say that. That that I was wonderfully surprised. I I never I never felt this way before. Like two days ago, someone announced they are making a game for the next where I am the protagonist. Uh, it's called Next Shift. So it's, it's basically a next assembly line, building nexts, and everything goes wrong. <laughs> and I am, <laughs> I am the hero.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's about, it's, it's every gamer's dream to be in their own video game, isn't it? <laughs> I know.
3: And for some reason, that never happened to me. And lo and behold, here you go. I am now <laughs> uh, I've officially a video game character.
1: Well obviously when we're looking at pictures of the next I mean the one thing everyone always comments on straight away is how incredibly beautiful that case is and you mentioned before that was made by the you know the original designer uh, Rick Dickinson and that was a great score getting him on board and obviously sadly that was the last thing he did before he passed away but how did that come about then and how did you work with Rick on on the design of it
3: Yeah there was a super interesting story when 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 I convinced uh Victor and Fabio that we could try uh making a, a full computer, right? The, the, we joke with one another, what if Rick Dickinson made it? So I, I, I got hold of his contact information and we had a call. And the first call we had, it was during Christmas. And and Rick was, I think he was Switzerland or somewhere. like that. He was literally on a ski piste And he was calling me while wearing skis. And <laughs> having this conversation about, would you like to bring the Spectrum back to life? And it was surprisingly easy to convince him, and, uh, the, and it was a joy to work with him and Phil Candy, his partner, right? A lot of, a lot of what the Spectrum Next became was also uh, Phil Candy. They, they, they have been working together for decades, the two of them who made uh, uh, Dickinson Associates. I have never seen anyone to have such an attention to detail and such a care with a product like uh, those two guys. Did everything they put under a microscope, some of the pictures they sent us uh, requesting adjustments on the molding and, and the tooling of the case, it, it's, it's, it's under uh, 50 magnification. It's like literally put under a microscope. And it's, it's that level of attention and care paired with an insight of decades of experience of putting these things together, it was something to behold. I was always in awe of how those guys worked. And, of course, it was a, a terrible, terrible tragedy when we lost Rick, and Rick never saw the Spectrum Next fully mm. assembled, right? Uh, I think the best he saw was a, a, a 3D out uh, of an injection of a, of a prototype. Um, and it was it was sad. He came, nobody knew. He, he kept it very private about it. We, we didn't know that what he was going through for a few years before he came to pass. So it was, it was um, It was one more reason why we had to see this through to its full extent, right? It was to live up to the expectations that he had set himself and that we had to follow.
1: And it really is a thing of beauty. I mean, you know, you look at that. It looks like a modern machine, but it's got all those nods and respects. Back to the original spectrum, you know, he did a wonderful job on it.
3: Thank you very much. It's very kind for you to say.
0: So this Kickstarter has been massively successful. Would you be doing another one, or would you eventually <laughs> be seeing the Spectrum Next commercially available in a retail unit?
3: I, I don't think we will ever be able to make retail out of it unless we change things substantially, because uh, it, the Kickstarter is made at uh, at pretty much at cost. So if we had to add another sixty percent on top, which is will be what retailers would want, uh, it became quite quite expensive and prohibitive. um so i don't know I, I think that if we had to do it we would have to manufacture in china etc and that all those questions become to become to raise their ugly heads and say is that what we want to do i certainly don't do this as a as a business right it, it makes no sense for me to do it as a business so i i don't know that is the answer i, I If someone wants to take it over, that I've been in discussions with a lot of people in the past that would like to do a different job of it, uh, perhaps, but I I, I struggle to see it hitting a shelf on Amazon or something, I say shelf, it's a virtual shelf, but uh, on Amazon or or something similar to that at at a reasonable price, unless some compromises are made. And I don't think that 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 will be good. So probably no, I wouldn't do it again. I would stop here while people are happy with what they got.
1: What do you think the Spectrum community needed something like this to kind of re-inspire confidence after the Vega Plus disaster? Uh,
3: I would say so. There was a lot of cynicism the first time around. We, we, we got some pretty nasty people trying to make a strip when we, when we first launched the Kickstarter three years ago. And at every delay, they they were they were making themselves heard and <laughs> making ourselves make making us feel guilty for another delay. Um, but in the end, I think it was worth it because that could have been a nail in the coffin for the community in terms of anything new. And uh, the the next is by no means uh, the end of a, of a of a retro story, right? I think that people should do this with the MSX. I think they should do this with uh, with well there is a project on the Commodore. I'm not very familiar with it, but I know there is a Commodore 65 in the works. Um, so there is opportunity there. And every time that we feel like we can, we have contributed to enable these to follow in our footsteps. I feel proud of having done that. And um, I, I was not, I was not a Vega-backer, uh, neither the original nor the second one, because for me, it was never a video game. It was always a computer, right? There's it, no criticism leveled at, at those guys. I have no insight of what happened there. Um, but for me, the Spectrum was always a computer, was not a, a video game. The, most of the time I was playing games on it, I will not lie, but uh, it, it was not meant for me to be without a, a keyboard and without um, without the ability to change the experience stop the game, poke in, poke out, do my own stuff anytime I feel like it. So this is why I think that the spectrum is different. And and I honestly think that the, the, the what we created with the next set a new standard for what retro uh, uh, projects should follow. And I hope that they do. Um, but as, as I mentioned before, for, for me, Putting it together the first time around was all about bringing a very kind of disjointed experience of how many things I had to buy and put together in order to experience the next to the spectrum to a full extent in this day and age, and replace that with a single package. Right, that was there was a starting point for me.
1: So, I mean, the new Kickstarter is running still at the moment. People can get in there if they're quick. <laughs> I'll put a link, obviously, in our show notes. I'm sure that all our listeners have seen it by now and hopefully backed it as well. Uh, I mean, speaking personally, I've wanted one of these machines. Every time I see one at Play Expo or an event like that, I just want to get my hands on one and play with it at home. And I know at the moment there are different tiers as well on the new Kickstarter. You've got stuff like the Plus and the Accelerated versions. Can you kind of talk us through the differences of the, the tiers and the different models?
3: Yeah, this is actually less tier than last time around. We Because most people went for the accelerator anyway. So the two tiers that we have now, uh, they're very similar. There's only one difference between them, which is the presence of the accelerated board, right? So you get on on the plus tier, you get everything that you got the last time around. On on the plus SKU, you get a real-time clock, you get two megs of memory this time around, you get the Wi-Fi module. um, So it's the full experience. On the accelerated, uh, you also get uh, a Raspberry Pi Zero, inside of it and, and the raspberry pi 0 it acts as a as a kind of a co processor to the z80 uh, so anything that the z80 wants the raspberry pi to do it, it talks to the raspberry pi and say hey can you do this for me the raspberry pi replies back and the z80 takes takes it from there so for instance uh, you can put an audio file on on the on on the the raspberry pi and the raspberry pi plays back that audio file, straight into the audio input in, into the Next. So you can load a TZX file. Um, doesn't matter how complex or how weird that TZX file is in terms of speeds and what it does while it's loading, uh, because it's just audio playback being played back by the Raspberry Pi, the Next reads that as original Spectrum would do. There's also new things, like uh, we just unveiled the voice synthesizer that the Pi is doing on the background. So you, you type something in Basic and the Pi reads and, and, and puts that back to the Z8 and z 80 outputs that into the audio channel. And, and the next step, I think uh, some, some of the guys, uh, Xalior and team, they are working uh, on a maths library. So uh, the Raspberry Pi can do very advanced maths matrix multiplication and whatnot. Um, so you could do 3D in basic on, by the Z80. So that's, that's essentially the only difference between the two SKUs. as one comes with an accelerated board already installed. But if you go for the, for, the, for the lower SKU for the plus, you can install the Raspberry Pi by yourself. You just have to solder a connector or buy with the connector and just slot it in and off you go.
0: When are the systems likely to be delivered?
3: So we have everything lined up this time. Hopefully there won't be any big surprises because we went through all of those surprises in the original one. It took us three years to sort them out. So I, I expect that between six months to uh, the year that we uh, we said we would deliver, it will be delivered. Uh, the, the, the quicker I can do it this time, the quicker it will be done. So I, it will be between six months and a year. Uh, hopefully less than that.
1: But when people have got them in their hands, I mean, where are you kind of hoping that the project's going to go next? Have you got any kind of like future visions for it?
3: I think that where you should go next is is just software, right? Focus on, on the content being done and supporting people to create more and more content because every single piece of software that gets released adds value to what the next is, right? The next without the community, without the the, the content that people are making for it is, is nothing. It's just, it's just a piece of silicone and plastic. So I, I really need to put a lot of effort into supporting the community and make sure that they have access to uh, all the backers and everybody who is part of their community. So they can, uh, they can sell their games or they can get people to back their work so more of these things get done.
1: Well, Henrique, your passion for the Spectrum and the community is just incredible. And uh, you know I, I can't wait to get hold of my Spectrum next. As I mentioned before, uh, it, it's incredible that you're doing this in 2020. And, you know, this machine just looks amazing. So best of luck with, and uh, not that you need it, <laughs> with the rest of the Kickstarter. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
3: Well, thank you so much for the kind invitation. Really appreciate it. And anytime, folks, I hope you enjoy your next. And if you don't, you let me know.